0: grace and mercy and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the Christian church has often called this man Doubting Thomas. He was the disciple who was not in the room when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples on the evening of that very first Easter. And that's how it went. On Easter morning, as we've looked at the last two weeks, Jesus has been appearing to people. And on the evening of Easter, Jesus appeared in that locked upper room in Jerusalem to the ten disciples, and Thomas was not with them. And everything now, as they have seen Jesus, everything now that they have heard all throughout the day is starting to make sense. The the things that the women had told them are now being validated. The things that the Emmaus disciples have reported back to them now makes sense and is validated. And they now have seen Jesus with their own eyes. They have touched the scars in his hands and his side. And they believe. Thomas was away, and then Thomas comes back after Jesus has gone. And of course, the believing disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, we, or they say to Thomas, Thomas, we have seen Jesus. We have seen him. And Thomas responds with these very sharp words. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That last phrase, I will never believe, in the Greek language, in the original language that the, that the New Testament was written in, this is the strongest way in Greek grammar to say this phrase. I will never believe. It's, it's in a sense saying, I will never, ever, ever, not ever believe unless this happens. You know, the church has called him doubting Thomas, but doubts weren't necessarily what Thomas was struggling with. At least from my perspective, as I understand that word doubt, I think doubt, if you have a doubt, it implies a certain level of belief right? As if you kind of believe, but you kind of don't, like you've got some questions, you don't have full clarity. However, Thomas isn't necessarily struggling with doubts. Thomas has the exact opposite of belief. He has unbelief. And his unbelief was an intentional, conscious decision, a refusal to believe. Eight days later, Jesus shows up again, and this time Thomas is here, and, and it's the an exact repeat of what has happened, on, and on this day, when Jesus appears, it's as if the other disciples aren't there, and he goes directly to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, reach out your hand, touch the nail marks in my hands, touch the scar in my side where I was stabbed in the side. Thomas, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but Believe. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas's problem was not necessarily his doubts, but it was his unbelief. He desired, and he made a conscious decision not to believe. He didn't want to believe that anybody, that what anybody had said was true. Not believing was his choice. In the Greek language, the word for disbelieve is this word apistis, and believe is the word pistis all right? And so you can see right there that, that, that A, that letter A, means direct opposite in the Greek language. It's the same thing in, in English, right? Disbelieve, believe. Unbelief, believe. It is, it is the exact opposite. So Thomas, Thomas had the opposite thing of belief. He had unbelief. And like Thomas, I, I think to disbelieve like Thomas did, it was a choice. It was a conscious choice that Thomas made to deny human reason in the way that Thomas did. Just think of it. Nobody was really asking Thomas to have a blind faith. They were were asking Thomas to believe their eyewitness account. And Thomas made a refusal to not believe their eyewitness account. And if you think about it, in a way, Thomas was being very arrogant and selfish in his disbelief just think about this. Throughout the day, he had heard eyewitness accounts from Mary Magdalene and the other Marys. They came back and told the disciples, the tomb is empty. Mary Magdalene had even seen the appearance of Jesus, and she came back and told them, and Thomas said, I don't believe you. It's an idle tale. He had heard the reports of the Emmaus disciples, whom Jesus had just broken bread with, and they ran back, and Thomas refused to believe. Thomas would not take them at their word. And if you think about it, these were all people that he trusted. They were his friends. They were reasonable people. They were were not out of their minds. And frankly, they were just as surprised about the resurrection as him. They weren't expecting the resurrection. So for them to see this and to come to a belief, Thomas should have taken them at their eyewitness account. That should have been valid enough, but it wasn't. And so we could say Thomas is being unreasonable. He is holding out his own demands over and above what is being offered to him from people who know him and love him. Now the question I guess maybe some of you ask, and it's a fair question, is it okay to have doubts and questions about whether or not Jesus has risen from the dead? Of course it's, it's natural for us to wonder how all this happened. And I have my own questions as well, right? But it's not a position of disbelief. Disbelief is the opposite of belief. There was a boy who was nine years old. And when he was nine years old, his mother died, tragically. His father, obviously distraught and now becoming disengaged in his grief, sent him and his older brother off to a boarding school where they were often beaten and abused and mistreated. At that time, because of these harsh realities, any semblance of a Christian upbringing from those early days of childhood was now gone. At age 17, this boy, now turning into a young man, he explained bluntly to a Christian friend that he had known since childhood, he said this, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. This young man, this teenager, he, he gave in to all the popular thinking of his day. And most specifically, he held on to this notion that anything from the past was not worthy of attention. It was not valid, it was not interesting, it was not specific. To him and to the thinkers of his time, what was more important was the idea of progress. What was out ahead what, what was what laid before was what you could see and understand and work towards. And because he had that idea, he had no room in his mind and in his thinking for any sort of faith in any religion, let alone Christianity. This boy, now turned into a young man, was working very, very hard in his life to disbelieve in Jesus Christ. That story, this is the beginning of the story of a man named Clive Staples Lewis, maybe better known to some of you as C.S. Lewis, a British-born author uh, from the early and mid-1900s. C.S. Lewis spent the majority of his young life disbelieving in Christianity and religion in general. However, as he approached his mid-20s, he started having uh, many doubts about his unbelief and many thoughts, and he had entered into many uh, conversations with friends and prominent thinkers. Uh, most specifically, he had a good friend by the name of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. And through conversations with Tolkien and some other Christian friends of his, Eventually, C.S. Lewis wrote these words in his autobiography. You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and in 1929, when I was 31 years old, I gave in. And admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Aren't those words so poignant at the end? The most dejected and reluctant convert. C.S. Lewis is admitting that he did not want to believe. He was doing everything he could to not believe, but God had different desires for him. And I have to go on. He continues writing in his autobiography these important words. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son, he at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Those are deep words worth pondering, and you can, you can look those up if you want in his autobiography called Surprise, Uh, surprised by joy. But what's the point here? C.S. Lewis was working very hard in his life to disbelieve in Jesus, to not believe. But when he was approached with the reality of who Jesus is, he couldn't not believe. Even though he didn't want to believe, he had to believe because Jesus wouldn't leave him alone. And these are the kind of people that Jesus came to seek and to save. And these are the kind of people that Jesus can handle. People who are brought to his grace, kicking and struggling and resentful and even trying to escape and flee. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. I tell you this story because this is exactly what we see in the story of Thomas. Thomas was reluctant. He was refusing. He had the opposite of belief. He literally was trying to run away from the eyewitness accounts of his friends. But Jesus Christ, in his fullness of grace and power and love, came to him. Jesus is the one who has the power. This was what Jesus did. Thomas did not believe by his own own understanding, Jesus came to him. Jesus showed up full of power and full of love. And when he did, he said to Thomas, here is everything that you need. Look, here I am. And when Jesus did, Thomas could not help but having that bold confession of faith, my Lord and my Conversion, the, the process of going from unbelief to belief, is solely a work of God himself by the power of his Holy Spirit. You and I cannot convert people by our, uh, our good reason. The only way that people come to a belief is through a powerful encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our living King who has authority over all things, and yet he is soft, and he is approachable, and he is intimate. All of these things are true in the character of God, vast power, and yet incredible intimacy. You know, after the conversion of C.S. Lewis, he became one of the most prominent Christian thinkers and writers in our, I would say, even in our modern context. And most notably, if you don't know this, most notably the thing that put him on the international map were his famous children's uh, stories called the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia or if you want to save some time, you can watch the movies. They had some really good movies made recently that are quite true to the books. I would highly recommend these things. C.S. Lewis, though, he gives us in these stories the image of Aslan. And Aslan is this divine lion, a god who plays like a Christ-like figure, a divine lion. Aslan is the symbol at the same time of God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer who sacrifices himself for love. Aslan is a lion, at the same time good and majestic and yet gentle and terrible, all at the same time. Because for C.S. Lewis, God is a lion who goes in search of man, hunts him down, and embraces him with love. I want to show you a scene from the end of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, maybe you've seen this before, where Aslan the lion has been sacrificed, and now he rises from the dead. Take a look at this. go so cold. Aslan. If the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go and little time to get there, and you may want to cover your ears. If you haven't seen the movie, you can uh, go and watch it for yourselves. But here, this, my friends, this, this is Jesus. Jesus is powerful and Jesus is mighty. And yet Jesus is love and Jesus is grace and he comes for you and me, kicking, screaming, reluctant sinners. And I want you to hear this today. If you're sitting here today and somebody dragged you here and it's your desire to disbelieve in Jesus Christ, you're going to have to work very, very hard to hold on to your disbelief because Jesus is coming for you and he will be relentless in his pursuit of you. And my prayer is that you will see that his compulsion is your liberation. And then to the rest of you, disciples, believers in Jesus Christ, It is your responsibility to bear witness the testimony that you have seen and received in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot go and be silent from here. You have seen Jesus, you have encountered him, his love and grace has come for you, and you are the means by which Jesus will often show up and appear to your unbelieving friends and family. So go, with love and grace, with power and might, because Jesus will show up in his name. Amen.